Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Last week, we began our Advent series, The Long-Expected Savior, with the emphasis being on the long expectation of Advent. What we're doing is we are making use of this crazy year, this difficult season, where all of us are longing for a return to normalcy, and we're taking that longing and using it to train ourselves how to properly long for the return of Jesus. And what I'm seeking to do is explore uh, some of the overlooked expectations that find their fulfillment in Jesus. All the hopes of all their years are met in Jesus, in thee tonight. But I want to look at some of the more, um, one, some of the expectations and hopes that normally get overlooked. So like last week, um, we looked at the, uh, the ad, what Advent means in the heavenly realm. God's long-expected retribution against Satan that has come and is coming. Now this week, I want to look at what Advent means in the earthly realm. Whereas with Satan, the advent of Jesus meant retribution, when it comes to God's creation and the inhabitants therein, Jesus' advent means redemption. I am sure you have noticed the uh, popularity, the explosion of popularity of these home renovation shows that our culture has just become obsessed with. Um, you know how it works, even if you're not into them. Folks have a home that is, you know, helplessly outdated and run down, but then, you know, the HGTV renovation fairies come in and in 30 minutes, the house is transformed into their dream home. And if of course, all of these shows end with the before and after pictures of the transformation. And this is the appeal of the show. There is something satisfying to renovation. Meaning, I don't think uh, new construction on HGTV would be that popular of a show. Where we just watch people, you know, choose from a cookie-cutter home design, and then we get to watch that thing get constructed, and the before and after pictures are architecture renderings, and then a picture of a new home. I don't think that would be as popular. What we want is something old and ruined, transformed and restored, where in the end, the home feels both old and new, meaning the historical details are preserved and even celebrated 
but there is also an updated newness to the project. Well, forgive me for over-spiritualizing HGTV, but I wonder if that satisfaction is an echo of Eden. I wonder if there is something inside of us that loves the idea of restoration because there's something inside of us that is actually pining after it. I wonder if deep down we are yearning not necessarily for something altogether new, but for renewal. Renewal. I think this is so. What we are longing for on an individual and global scale is this thing called redemption. Well, Jesus has come, and Jesus shall return for just that. To commence redemption in his first advent, and then to complete redemption in his second advent. And those are my two points this morning. We're going to see redemption commence in Luke 2, and then redemption complete in Revelation 22. Let's start with Luke verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, what you need to know about the nativity accounts, the accounts of Christ's birth in Scripture, is there is no unintentional detail. Everything happened the way it happened for a reason. So what are we to make of this odd part of the story? Shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. I don't know what comes to mind when you try to picture that scene. My concern is that we have domesticated that scene, um, that we have turned the nativity night into an endearing, um, peaceful moment, so to speak. But what should come to mind when you read that verse is darkness and terror. We've never known darkness like being in the wilderness of a first century Middle Eastern night. Just pitch black dark. And not just darkness, but terror. The shepherds are keeping watch at night over their flocks because the nights were dangerous. That was their job. Not just from predators, but from robbers. So what you're supposed to imagine in this verse is a dark and dangerous night. But in some ways, we don't have to imagine it because it's all we've ever known. It is a dark and scary world out there, is it not? These shepherds, surrounded by the terror of darkness, is a picture of the world in need of the Messiah. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, as you heard in our Old Testament reading, describes it just like that. A people walking in darkness, dwelling in a land of deep darkness. The imagery there of Isaiah's diagnosis is, is, is a um, pervasive darkness that dominates the world. And that's important. Here's why. Traditional religious concepts um, essentially view the reality of things as a good versus evil, like light versus darkness competition playing out. The Bible actually has a far bleaker view of the world as we know it, one that is predominantly dark. Now, that might be a negative assessment of things, but can you argue with it? I think when we truly evaluate things, both on an individual and societal level, Isaiah's assessment holds true. Individually, Isaiah calls us 
a people who walk in darkness. The Bible uses the word walk to speak, uh, not necessarily to our conscious actions and decisions, but to the entirety of our being. Meaning, we don't necessarily think about walking, do we? It's just what we do without thinking. It's our way of being as we go about life. And Isaiah sees us as a people who walk in darkness. Our way of being is dark. An honest assessment of our thought life, our hidden desires, our untamed words, our destructive habits, our anger, our greed, our lust, our corrupt motivation, it's dark. It's dark in me and it's dark in you. But not just individual, but societal darkness. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness. So what does a collection of those who walk in darkness, coming together to create cultures and cities and even families, what what does a collection of those who walk in darkness create? A land of deep darkness. Our world is dark. Yes, we could talk about what gets so much attention on the news, war, violence, corruption, prejudice, poverty, exploitation, and on and on we could go. But I don't think we need the news to convince us that we live in a dark world because our experience in the land of deep darkness is enough to convince us. You have been mistreated. You have been abused. You have had your heart broken. You have been abandoned, you have been exploited, friends and family perhaps have forsaken you, you've been stolen from, you've been lied to, you've been slandered against, you have been injured by the land of deep darkness. And as if all of this isn't enough, the land of deep darkness will one day receive our bodies into its shadows. Every moment we draw closer to the darkness of our own grave. So yes, I think shepherds keeping watch at night is a most appropriate description of the world that Jesus was born into. But, says the prophet Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then he goes on to say, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And with those words, God's people were left clinging to the promise of Isaiah that the birth of light is coming. Centuries upon centuries of cursing the darkness and yearning for that piercing light of this long-expected child now continue with verse 9 in Luke 2 as we see the wait is finally over. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Don't miss that detail. The world's darkness is overwhelmed by heaven's light, and they are filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born, Isaiah, for unto us is born. Now the angels, for unto you is born. This day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And with that, for unto us a child is born has come to pass. But what does all this mean? 
John describes the birth of Jesus as light shining into darkness. But what does all this light and darkness stuff even mean? In a word, redemption. You see, darkness is actually only the absence of light. And so, when light invades darkness, the darkness scatters, and it is as if light reclaims a space that rightfully belongs to the light. And this is the essence of redemption. Have you ever noticed how obsessed the Bible is with what I call re-words? Redemption, renewal, regeneration, restoration, restoration, reconciliation, and of course, resurrection. The Bible is obsessed with these re-words. Now, the goal of other religions and philosophies is always a new end, not a renewed end. So you leave this life and this world behind and you escape to to something entirely different. Yes, the, the Eastern religions have a concept of reincarnation, but the goal of reincarnation is a process of moving up and out of this current existence into a spiritual nirvana. But the Bible will have none of that. The Bible is a redemption story. The story of creation covered by darkness, but then being reclaimed by the invasion of light. And when you watch the life of this newborn Messiah, this is what you see. He is a fount of redemption. As everywhere he goes, darkness scatters. The darkness of disease, the darkness of pain, the darkness of shame, the darkness of sin, demonic darkness, even the darkness of death. All darkness is banished by the presence of this man. The problem, though, is that it's just flashes of light, not permanent, not pervasive light. Is there any way that the Savior could permanently change the conditions of the world from a land of deep darkness to exclusively light, a permanent and pervasive redemption? Yes, but it would require something shocking. There is an odd detail included in the account of his crucifixion. Perhaps you've always wondered why it's there. While Jesus was on the cross, it says at the sixth hour, that is noon, high noon, when the light should be shining the brightest, the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. On the cross... Jesus is overwhelmed by darkness, the light of the world extinguished and buried within the dark shadows of a tomb. I thought Isaiah said that wouldn't happen. Specifically, John said, the light will shine into the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome the light. Well, as you know, at the dawn of the third day, think about that, nativity takes place at night, The resurrection takes place at the dawn as the sun rises and chases away the night. So at the dawn of a new morning, as the psalm we love this sing says, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. I love that they chose to use that word. Bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. It is popular to say of 
Christmas that Jesus was born to die, and this is true. This is absolutely true, but not fully true. Jesus was born to die and then rise. He was born to succumb to the darkness so that out of darkness he could bring forth light. The resurrection of Jesus was the dawn of redemption's eternal day. The launch of the conquest of light promised by Isaiah, a conquest that will continue until Jesus returns in blinding splendor of his glory and every hint of darkness is banished forever. So we've seen redemption commence now with great expectations and unashamed hopefulness. Let's turn our attention to see redemption complete. Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed. That's a whole other redemption motif that we could preach. Uh, Genesis, cursed is the ground because of you. Galatians, Christ became a curse for us. Um, He redeemed us from the curse by becoming cursed for us. Revelation, no longer will there be anything accursed. Another sermon for another day. Here for our theme, notice what replaces the curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Remember that everywhere Jesus went in the Gospels, I said that redemption came with Him. Well, upon his second advent, his presence is now a permanent fixture. We shall forever behold his face and his name shall be on our foreheads, meaning we will be permanently, we will permanently belong to him in a way that cannot be compromised again. He is tattooed on our foreheads. Now listen to this, verse 5. And the night will be no more. The birth of Jesus... Light invades the night. The resurrection of Jesus initiates the dawn of the night. The return of Jesus, the night will be no more. It says, they will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. You see, a lamp or even the sun still creates shadows, doesn't it? Why? Because they, they are a, a singular, limited source of light. But what happens when the source of light is omnipresent? Pervasively over all and in all. What happens is that you could search the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth for any remaining shadows and find nothing. The people who once walked in darkness will walk only in light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness will dwell only in the land of light. Now, along the theme of this Advent series, which I want us to do each week. Let's pause for some time of longing, okay? Let's give our minds and hearts the freedom to dream a bit this morning. I think the best way for us to do that is to imagine yourself as someone that Jesus comes across in the Gospels. And here is my question for you in light of that. When you see him face to face, because you will see him face to face as they did in the Gospels, if you were to come across Jesus, what would he undo? If you were to meet him face to face, and he were to stare you down with his redemptive glare and speak to you his redemptive words, what would be redeemed? 
Would it be your disease? Would it be your anger? Would it be your depression? Would it be your loneliness? Would it be your fear? Would it be an addiction that you have to battle every day? Would it be your broken sexuality? Your longing for redemption? Would it be lingering effects of a trauma or abuse that you suffered and haunts you to the day? Would it be the funeral of a loved one that stings every day? Would it be your family, your family system redeemed? If you were to encounter Jesus, what would come untrue? Name it specifically and indulge the dream that that specific darkness will soon face the light. Listen, I know how this works. I've been pastoring for a while now. I know we fear to vulnerably expose ourselves to the plausibility of redemption. After all, the night has forged cynics of us all. For who dares dream of the light while surrounded by so much darkness? But what I'm trying to say is that the Advent season is the season for us to dream. That is the design of it. It gives us permission to let our hearts go there. So I'm telling you, go there. Indulge hope. Feast on promise. Let your longings run wild of how good it could be, knowing with certainty that whatever you imagine, Christ's redemption is sure to exceed. And then, it's not all about us, right? And then expand that out. Expand your emotions and and hopes and imaginations out to a global scale. Imagine a world where nothing goes wrong, where there are no shadows. Every time you say that shouldn't be, everything from a pandemic to a stub toe, from orphans in the world to weeds in your yard, everything that shouldn't be will not be. That's the promise. The problem is that we're not there yet. This is, this is the struggle of Advent, right? There is more waiting to be done, more trusting, more hoping, more yearning, more praying, which, as I said last week, and I'm going to say again, is really hard for Americans. What we want is quick fix. We want the 30-minute show that yields the satisfying before and after pictures. But you do realize homes are not renovated in 30 minutes, right? Just so we're clear. You do realize there's a lot left out of those shows. All we get to see is the before and the after with a few fun highlights in between. I don't think the shows would be as entertaining or popular if we followed the architects drawing up plans, the engineers evaluating structural issues, plumbers rerouting plumbing and electricians rewiring and getting permits from the local building authorities. Does that sound like a fun show to you? No, but guess what? You don't get the all-satisfying finished picture without the mundane, unseen labors of all the in-between. And brothers and sisters, that is now your life. Jesus, by His Spirit, is working out the mundane, unappreciated details of his grand restoration project, both in your life and in the world. I know it's hard. It's hard for me too. 
and I know we want the finished product. And there's nothing wrong with crying out every day what we just sang, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Cry it out every day. But as you pray, don't give in to despair as you wait with patience for God to answer that prayer. Don't give up on the promise of redemption, for it is sure to come to pass. Perhaps not in our timing, but it will come to pass. And you know how I know? Because when you look at the finished product of the resurrected Jesus, what is highlighted? The scars of His hand. The cost of His redemption. Beloved, I promise you, well, who cares what I say? God promises you. Jesus promises you. The scars of Jesus promise you that if it cost him so much to commence redemption, then you can know with absolute certainty he will return to complete his redemption. Let me pray. Lord, may we indulge hope. May you lift our imaginations to what is to come. May you press back against the doubts and despairs, the fears, the skepticism, and lift our hearts to what you are doing and will do. And would you please use this table as you promised to do just that, this table that proclaims that you will come again. Let's leave here, Lord, indulging in hope. In Jesus' name.